Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone. I hope you're having a great day. You are in for a treat with this episode. Today I caught up with an old friend from Downers Grove, Illinois. Tracy O'Malley and I grew up together and graduated from Downers South in 1990. I went on to become a pro triathlete and start skirt sports. And along the way, as I've mentioned, I battled many demons and tackled many barriers. I still am. Tracy went on to become one of the most sought after speakers, network marketing experts, and lifestyle entrepreneurs out there. But as we know, there's always a story behind the woman and behind the success. Uh, Tracy has battled her own demons and tackled countless barriers before she finally found the strength and courage to step into her own truth and become exactly who she was meant to be. Today, we cover so many topics that I think will rock you to your core, especially if you or someone you love have have, uh, experienced them. You know, Tracy grew up in an alcoholic household. Her dad was a sort of Irish, feisty, high-functioning, what she calls uh, Archie Bunker-style alcoholic, and created an eggshell-type environment in her home. And that's what laid the foundation for Tracy to create the exact same environment as she got older. You know, like father, like daughter, Um, Tracy's alcohol, her her relationship with alcohol played a huge part of her life for a good 25 years through many different stages, Um, some full denial until it became so obvious that she was not the person she wanted to be as long as she included it in her life. But even when she was sort of Oh, I'd say flimsily trying to kick alcohol, um, which she tried a couple of times. She held on to another more powerful addiction, bulimia. So there's a lot of control needs going on here. Um, Tracy talks a lot about the need for outlets to relieve the pressure she was feeling in her life. And like any good hero story, we need to find and hit a rock bottom before we can come on up. Um, Tracy finally did just that. And, you know, when she did, she entered a true and honest period of recovery where she came to terms with who she really is and put it out there. So as she searched for a new financial outlet because she needed to cut ties with all of her previous relationships to truly move forward down a path of sobriety, she discovered a product line that helped her feel great again physically. Uh, And after resisting the idea of working for a network marketing company, 
she calls a period schemey kind of thing. Uh, she finally opened her mind to exploring isogenics, and she was both encouraged and and excited to give it a try. Uh, today, Tracy is in their elite fifty as their number thirty five earner in the Millionaires Club. I think out of like sixty thousand people. Um, I'm not a network marketing person. I've never been drawn to that particular business strategy myself, but I can truly respect and honor how Tracy has built her business and reformed herself along the way. She is one of the most open, real, honest, and available people you will come across. She lays it out there, good, bad, and ugly, and there's a lot of all. And as she says, she's a bottom line me kind of girl, so she doesn't suffer a lot of bull. (laughs) Um, I know you'll enjoy this one. Toward the end, we announce a giveaway that's posted on the Skirt Sports Facebook page. Tracy asks you this, if you could choose any breakthrough in your life to happen today, what would it be? So answer this question to win one of her new books available very soon called Grace Grit Guts. From effed up to freedom. Okay, now on to the show. Okay, Tracy O'Malley, how many years has it been since we've, gosh, I guess since we've connected, but before that, since we freaking grew up together? Uh, Probably graduation 1990 in Downers Grove, Illinois, um, other than a few skirt chaser races. It's unbelievable. I mean, I think about you growing up and you just seemed so happy. (laughs) It was like, you were just this like super happy, positive person and this energy that everyone wanted to be around. Really? Do you still feel that way? (laughs) Uh, It's funny that you say that because I, I feel like I'm that now, but back then I thought I was, I thought I was kind of dark. At least that's what was happening in my mind. What I put out in the world was probably completely opposite, which, you know, that continued on for a solid 40 years. So um, I always wanted to be that. And, you know, I I always heard the phrase, fake it till you make it. And um, it, it took 40 years to figure it out <laughs> for real. Well, I, you know, I think there's just like so much. It's really interesting because a lot of times we look back on our past lives and we're really embarrassed or we we see ourselves in a certain way, but we forget that other people don't see us as deeply. And so, you know, I I have this memory of this beautiful, vibrant person and you have a quite different memory of your path. <laughs> it's so crazy, you know, and thankfully I've had enough people pour belief on belief into me until I could really a hundred percent believe in myself in all areas of my life. And I'm grateful. I, I mean, I have no regrets or I'm not embarrassed about any part of my life, even though there are some pretty shady things that have gone on in 45 years. Um, but they've all, they've all helped make me who I am today, who is pretty darn awesome. So, um, it's, it's, it's also interesting to hear how, you know, at a time where I was so unsure of myself and not sure an insecurity, you know, we grow up with that stuff sometimes and stories that were told to me that probably weren't true and stories about myself I told that weren't true and what we put out to the world to mask what we're really feeling inside sometimes when all really anybody wants at the end of the day is to know who you really, really are. 
even the messy stuff, even the not so pretty stuff, but to know that they're talking to somebody that is authentic and transparent. Um, because a lot of us are going through a lot of the same things. And when we're going through it, we think it's all by ourselves. And if we just spoke up more and pulled off the masks that we hid behind, we would see that we don't have to do this world and these challenges we face alone. Um, but we're choosing it. A lot of people are still choosing to do that. I'm glad that I have chosen not to do that anymore. And a beautiful life of freedom has come as a result of that. Well, let's talk about some of these like dark and messy times, because the point is that you can help people to make those decisions and let their true selves come out, but only when they really, truly can see that others have gone before. You know, that's one of my thoughts on this. And, um, you know, you mentioned like feeling really insecure as a kid, and I don't know who doesn't. I mean, you have a daughter who's 21, right? I do. I mean, didn't, didn't she go through some times of insecurity? You know, it's interesting. Her and I have had some amazing conversations, even in the last week about that, because she always carried herself where you wouldn't think so. And, you know, we talk about everything in our family. We really, really do, which is a blessing. Um, Even some of the things I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're telling me this. Um, But even just last week, we talked about, you know, the body insecurity, which I was praying I didn't rub off on her, but I did in some ways. And it, it's opened up beautiful conversation about it. Um, but, you know, we'll get into it. There are some parts of me and my parenting, maybe, and just me navigating through the growth process that is life, you know, because I had my kids when I was 24 and 25. So I had a lot of growing up to do between now and between then and now. So, you know, thankfully, I'm young enough and in tune enough with their age group that I can relate and not forget what it felt like. And because I've done the work on myself, they also respect the heck out of me and know that maybe my mistakes weren't necessarily who I am. They were just maybe some bad choices, but they weren't my character and they weren't who my, who my soul is. And so I'm thankful that the three of us have kind of grown up together, but yeah, it's hard. Life is hard and you can find blessings in that. I, today I do, but back in the day, pre 40 years old, when life was hard, I played the victim in a lot of times, a lot of the times. And, um, that would affect a lot of, a lot of different areas of my life. Well, let's talk about, um, maybe when we were growing up, Cause now you're grounded. Like now you've, you've got perspective and different events happen to get you there. And so I want to talk a little bit about our earlier childhood because there are a lot of people listening who are raising kids. Like I have a six-year-old now, you have a 21-year-old. We're the same age. I know. She's not gonna- I'm not going to be the cool, hip, young mom. I'm like, the, you know, it's a different kind of relationship that's brewing, but all of the experiences are really important. So, you know, what about growing up in Downers Grove, Illinois, and going to Downers South with me? You know, what about that experience both shaped you in either way, positively or negatively? Oh, you know, Honestly, it was the greatest place to grow up. It really, really was. It's such a beautiful place in Illinois, um, close enough to the city where you could go have some fun, even though I never took advantage of that while I lived there. I do now more than I did when I lived there. Um, But, 
you know, I grew up, my dad um, is the oldest of seven Irish, you know, we're Irish, loud, loyal, passionate um, people. We really are. It's, I mean, I think we're bred that way. And, you know, alcohol was a huge part. I mean, I came out of my mom's womb, probably shooting back some, some beer and shots of whiskey. My very first beer was at 10 months old, believe it or not. And, you know, it it was a different age when we were growing up. I mean, if a parent took a picture today and did a selfie with their 10 month old, having the kid drink a beer probably would end up with the authorities at their door. Um, But back then it, it was, it was funny and it was a joke and, and it was, I mean, I, I look at those pictures today. I'm like, oh my gosh. Um, but alcohol was a huge theme in, in our home. And my dad was the oldest of seven, like I said, and, you know, at an early age, he had to grow up really quick. He was, you know, the, the surrogate father to his siblings because his dad worked three jobs to support them. And so my dad always had this kind of edge to him where you could tell he didn't have a lot of fun as a kid, but he prided himself on being responsible and taking care of things. And I, I joke all the time and the, the people that are listening that are my age and your age, they'll understand this. My dad was like the real life Archie Bunker. Um, oh, totally. I mean, I remember him and I remember your house being so fun and full of passion and energy. Uh, and it was. And I mean, my dad was the life of the party there was zero filter on my dad, which is really refreshing. But as a kid growing up with that, when there's no filter, even in good ways, and then not so great ways, you know, if he had an opinion, he spoke it and his delivery wasn't always um, very polished. It was more of the Archie Bunker delivery, which can cut and hurt. And even though as the 45 year old woman today, I get it, totally logically, I've really had to heal some places in my heart and the little girl in me that took those to heart, that took them like a six-year-old, you know, even today, you know, certain areas of my life. And and my dad was a great father. Every conversation was a lesson. Um, and even then I would roll my eyes and I'm like, geez, can't we just like talk or just, can't it just be fun? And everything was a lesson. He read the paper, um, front to back every week, the Sunday paper, like without fail, he wanted to be informed. Um, he was a financial planner and helped people with life insurance. So we had talks about death and, and responsibility and preparing for everything. And he never missed a day of work. Um, but he had this thing about him that he drank every day and the most functional alcoholic I've, I've ever seen in my life. He never was hungover, but he had this switch where he could go from Jekyll to Hyde in, in 2.2 seconds. And you never knew which one was going to show up. And as a child, not knowing what's going to happen. I mean, my entire day was dictated by the look on my dad's face the minute I saw him or the minute I heard him stumble in and hearing the ice cubes clank in the glass, like, oh, he's transitioned to whiskey. This is not going to be good. Um, so my my childhood was spent kind of um, really observing and adjusting um, to whatever kind of situation or mood my dad was in. And my mom she was the creative artistic type and, and kind of childlike in the most beautiful way 
where she was an artist and creative and she would play games. But when conflict would come, she would retreat and hide. And so I was kind of left to fend for myself in these situations and to figure it out. And my sister would just go cause conflict to get attention in that way. And I became this perfectionist. Let's not make waves. You know, I don't want any attention. You know, if, if you're making waves and causing conflict, then all hell is going to break loose. And I didn't want any part of that. So I started um, definitely becoming a chameleon in every aspect of my life. If I was at school and, you know, you saw me, I could be happy and fit right in, fly under the radar, not be like totally an accelerator, but not be like a thug on the floor. Or if I was on your team in sports, I would be the best team player encouraging you not be the best on the team, but not be the worst on the team. And I found myself like, okay, let's just fly under the radar because when you do, make a statement or um, a light is shined on you, who knows what can happen. And I wanted security. I wanted certainty as a child. And that just was never happening in my home. And so this became habit. And in the way as a kid that I began to cope with this, you know, us as an adult, we have so many different outlets to cope. And as a six-year-old, which is my first memory of really doing this, um, I turned to food. Um, we might, like I said, my sister, when conflict would arise, would hang with the dog by herself. She would become like a, an animal in a, and I mean that in the most beautiful way, you know, where she couldn't even hear or think she was just like this pet. And my mom would completely shut down and isolate and not get out of bed for weeks at a time. And my dad was like coming out of this and he, he, half the time he wouldn't remember things that he said or he was just pretending it didn't happen. And I was left there with all the feelings that is, is, is it just me or does nobody else see what just happened here? And to cope with that, um, I turned to food as a six-year-old and my first memory of my um, eating disorders began sitting underneath the dining room table with all the chairs pulled in so nobody could see I was hiding under there with an entire bag of cookies. And I remember it feeling that comfort, that, that, immense comfort when the first bite happened. And it was just like, okay, it was almost like my security blanket. And that went on for decades, the food with comforting it. And, you know, as I grew up and navigated through, you know, adolescence and, you know, I I got my period when I was 10 years old and I was the very first and I had boobs and, you know, I was starting to get attention because I was becoming a woman in fifth grade. So Tracy, tell me more about like, what kind of, you mentioned, you know, your dad going into more like episodes, was it just like heavy drinking and then he would be verbally abusive and then he would black out? Or, I mean, was there like physical abuse? It was crazy because you never, you you would never even know that the alcohol was getting a hold on him. And then all of a sudden, if somebody said something that fired him up, there would be a switch and the anger would come and, and occasionally things would fly. There was no physical abuse really in my home. You know, there were some holes in the walls. Um, I remember one fight between my parents that got kind of ugly. Um, but there were moments also when he wasn't triggered in an angry episode, but he would just pass out 
anywhere. And a lot of times, you know, we'd be driving and back then it wasn't as aware and, you know, not the thing to do. People did it all the time, not making any excuses for it at all, obviously. Um, and I, I remember being terrified anytime we would be out somewhere, you know, cause it, drinking was always involved always. There was never a time where a cooler didn't come with us. And I, my spot was always behind my dad in the car, um, while he was driving, um, and he was a chain smoker too. And I was always worried that he would burn the house down because he would just pass out and with a lit cigarette and our dining room table would have all these little burn marks on it and our couches would have holes in them. And so when we would be driving anywhere, my spot was strategically positioned right behind him at the edge of my seat with my hands ready to pop him upside the head just as a like, wake up, wake up kind of thing. If he, um, should start to doze off behind the wheel. And it was, it was so scary. It was so scary. And, you know, it was never talked about. And I think that became more painful than it, the actual terror of it happening. It's like, okay, is this all in my head? Am I the only one afraid? And it, it was, it was horrible. And the next day it would be like, nothing happened. And now, now knowing what I know about alcoholism and, drinking and my own issues and history with it. Um, I can logically understand what that's like today um, and what that's all about today. Uh, the little girl in me has had a lot of healing to do because certain things will happen where even though I may not react that way, my body will have a reaction, a fight or flight reaction that I'm like, oh, what's that about my heart might race or my breathing may be labored or I might stop breathing to hold my breath, like to brace myself for a scary moment. And so I've really worked hard to heal the little girl that experienced all that. And, um, you know, I love my dad. Um, there were so many more great times than the, the scary ones. Um, the lessons he would teach I carry today, um, but it was scary as a, as a kid growing up. And when you, when you, when your home is in a place where you have certainty, you start to seek it exteriorly. And so I mm -hmm. did, I did through, you know, being the life of the party once we got into high school, um, being the perfect student, uh, the teacher's pet, um, the good friend, I could tell you whatever you wanted to hear, um, you know, all sorts of things. But when I would get home, I rarely had friends over. There was a few times I did, you know, when, like when we were getting ready for homecoming or things like that. But I, I very rarely had anybody spend the night because I was afraid if my dad came home and it was a an ugly night that my friends might see that I can handle it. But I didn't want to expose anybody else to that. Um, so and I, I go ahead. You know, I, I understand too. Like this is your dad. You love him, you know, and you loved him. And totally. he did bring you so many amazing things. But one of the one of the gifts I guess he brought you was self-awareness. And as you've gotten older, that's come into play more. Mm -hmm. But the other interesting thing is you had to go on a journey of your own through alcohol abuse. Mm -hmm. And you knew like it wasn't a positive thing because you experienced it. And so you knew that whether it was, you know, super top of mind or sort of buried. Um, but what, what happened in your little journey with alcohol here? When did that start? It's interesting. Um, you know, it's funny. A lot of people will tell me that 
I can read any situation. Like, how did I learn to read situations or or anything as well as I do? Did you go to school for that? I'm like, no, I grew up with an alcoholic. You you learn very quickly how to read any situation that you come into. And, you know, when we got to high school, obviously parties and, and things like that. And and I, I always said I never wanted to be like that. I, I was never going to be an alcoholic. And my very first experience with alcohol, I was 15 years old. And, um, you know, back then, you're, you're definitely going to hear me date myself. Zima was like the thing. And I remember Zima. Right? I know, right? <laughs> Zima and wine coolers is what everybody else was drinking. And for my very first drinking experience, I figured a fifth of Southern Comfort would be a great idea. And so my very first experience drinking, I finished a fifth of Southern Comfort, blacked out, flew down flights of stairs, don't remember anything. Um I don't know what happened to me that night, um, but I knew that I was in trouble. And I knew from the very first second I took that very first sip, it was like all the, it was like taking off that pressure valve on a, a pressure cooker. It was like all of a sudden I could relax and I didn't have to be on my shit at all times. That very first sip at 15, I felt what that felt like. And if I could have just stayed at sips one, two, or drinks one or two, this would be a totally different story. However, I so badly wanted to relieve all the pressure of all the years, you know, and they accumulated from 15 to 40 that I was always searching for that, that pressure release. <clears throat> and, you know, there were, there were times in high school where especially when I got to 17, where it got really, really bad, where anytime I drank, I blacked out and found myself in some situations that um, were not good. You know, I was taken advantage of um, sexually a couple times. And, you know, the part of me that is so responsible believed at the time that I deserved that, that I brought that on myself. Um, I haven't talked about it, honestly, until this last year. Um, and, you know, the shame and guilt that comes with that, um, to not feel that you, it's like this vicious cycle. Like you feel like shit cause you drank yourself so into oblivion that you can't remember what happened to you, but you remember waking up in the middle of a field with dirt all over you and your skirt around your ankles. And then you don't want to feel that shame and guilt anymore. So to numb that out, you drink some more and it's just, and then you end up in the same predicaments over and, or it's getting worse. It, it, you know, in, in AA, we talk about, it's just a matter of yet's, you know, that hasn't happened yet, but if you continue this cycle long enough, it's eventually going to happen to you. And there was a time where I think I was 17 years old and, um, I had this awesome pickup truck. It was like a 1980 Datsun white pickup truck. And it had like primer as the paint job. And I used to love that thing. And I drove myself to one of these parties and it was the worst drinking episode I had had in high school. And I had woken up with in the field and I literally got in my truck and drove home and my dad was like, I needed to park it a certain way in the driveway or all hell was going to break loose. And I remember waking up the next morning thinking I just dreamt everything that just happened. And I looked down at my clothes and I was wearing the clothes from the night before with the, the mud on it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this wasn't a dream. And then all of a sudden I, I panicked. I'm like, how did I get here? You know, I was laying in the, the living room of my house 
And I freaked out and I ran out to the driveway and I don't know how I did it, but that truck was parked perfectly in the driveway by me. And that scared me, not enough to do anything about it. But, you know, when we have those moments, um, if, if you do have these moments, you know, the pain is when the pain is temporary like that, you vow, you, you make promises to God. You'll never going to do, I'm never going to do this again. And you got me out of this. I'm never going to do it again until the pressure comes again. And, and you want to relieve it. And so that the drinking continued and I went to college and, you know, I love sports. And I, I think I told you, I, I'd much rather watch sports center than talk about shopping and fashion. And so when I went to college and played sports in college, uh, a guy I started dating was on the baseball team. And so I hung out with the athletes all the time and drinking is such a huge part of sports. And I liked it because I could drink anybody under the table. And I would have shot contests. I would dare them to out, try and out drink me. And for the most, for most of the time I could, which that's not a really great thing to be able to do. I don't love, like that on my bio, but it was just who I was. It's, I prided myself on being Irish and can drink, you know, like a fish. And, and I realized in high school it was starting or in college, it was starting to get out of hand. And so I wanted to see and to prove that I wasn't like my dad. And so in college, I decided to go 30 days without it. And it was easy. It was not a big deal, you know, because I have other tools in my toolbox to numb out. So I didn't think I was an alcoholic because I could stop, you know, my perception of what an alcoholic was, was the one I grew up with. And I looked different and I acted different and I could stop. I could choose to stop. And so, you know, the little Judge Judy in me was like, well, I'm not as bad as you. You know, I started to play the comparison game and didn't think I had a problem because I could stop, um, like I said. But I had other things I was using to numb out and take the pressure off. And so it continued through then. And then um, when I met the guy I was dating in college, um, he proposed, we ended up getting married and like a good Irish girl does, I immediately had babies back to back and, and obviously you don't drink when you're pregnant and that wasn't an issue for me. And it's so funny because people talk about pregnancy and how stressful it was. And for me, I didn't like being pregnant, but I liked the calmness that I had, the peace I had, like that pressure was constantly just off. And I think it was because I wasn't having to apologize for things I don't remember or, you know, the shame and guilt cycle that I had all the time. And, you know, I made a conscious effort, especially when I was looking into the eyes of two little babies that I did not want to repeat those patterns. And so for the early parts of their childhood, alcohol really wasn't an issue at all. I had other things going on, like I said, to relieve that pressure. But in my mind, I justified that because it wasn't hurting anybody else. The alcohol, without a doubt, would affect anybody in my path. But the other stuff I had in my back pocket, in my mind, I justified why I did it because it didn't hurt anybody else. So it's kind of where it all began and started to grow legs of its own. So Tracy, your competitiveness is really coming through here. I love <laughs> and, and you know, the crazy thing to me is a lot of this I relate to. I mean, most of it, pretty much all of it. You know, there was this pride in drinking and being the best drinker. I mean, it is the weirdest thing. <laughs> but when, you know, we do things, we do them hard, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I go big or go home, so... 
Yeah. And whether it's, you know, you're trying to cover up for something or, or fill an insecurity, you know, everybody finds their crutches and alcohol was also one of my huge crutches. So everybody listening knows that if they've heard other episodes, because it's no secret. And that's, that's one of the big things here is that when we hide these things, we're ashamed. And you talk about apologizing and shame and guilt cycles. That's not healthy, right? But when we when we can finally let them out and accept them, the the first thing that always blows my mind is how amazing everybody is. Mm-hmm. How how you realize first and foremost that you are not alone in this world. I mean, how cool is that? It's cool and, you know, something I've learned the hard way and I spent most of my life, 40 years of it, keeping secrets and I realized we're as sick as our secrets. And the more we keep, the sicker we're going to get. And um, letting those out and speaking my truth. Um, yes, we aren't alone. I, the more I have shared what I was hiding, the more I realized that there is a beautiful community and we're all just doing the best we can and, and learning as we go. There's no instruction book for this. Um, but you know, telling our truth and living in our truth and speaking our truth is one of the best things I've ever done. Well, you talk about um, some other things you had, like tricks up your sleeve, right? What were those things? It's so funny because, you know, for those that know my story, the alcohol and recovery process of that, you would think that that was my biggest demon. And it was like, that might be enough, you know, right? (laughs) but not for you. No, no, no. I'm an overachiever. But um, (laughs) I think... Because that does leave so much, the alcoholism and alcohol abuse and drug abuse, that leaves so much wreckage behind um, that it gets more of the spotlight. However, in my book, I write more about the eating disorders that started at six years old. Um, And I've often said, if either of them are going to take me out, it's going to be the eating disorder. Um, you know, at, at an early age, like I said, I would cope with food. And then as you grow into womanhood at 10 years old and your body starts to change and, you know, you're developing before your entire school, you know, you become and you get curves in places that boys are noticing. And for somebody who does not like to be the center of attention, unless there's alcohol involved, um, you want to control that. And so I would go through, you know, suppressing these feelings by eating, but then I would go to the other drastic end and not eat for weeks or exercise like a a maniac to balance it out. You know, you've always got this, this, the pendulum swinging and it's like, you want to keep it centered. So if I've just ate, you know, a dozen donuts or whatever, you know, whatever it was, I would need to balance it out on the other end, whether it be not eating for a week exercising like a maniac, downing boxes of laxatives at a shot. I mean, just crazy, crazy things. And um, I did that for for most of my adult life. Um, when I wasn't drinking, this monster came out and I could hide this one because I, I never looked too thin. I never looked too heavy. Um, it, I was able to hide this one. And again, we get as sick as our secrets. And this secret, I carried with me until I was 40 years old. I mean, the alcohol was hard to hide when you're, you know, you're, you're doing stupid shit. 
And, you know, you're having to apologize for things that you don't remember. I was very consciously aware every time I would suppress a feeling and, and eventually, um, probably into my mid to early to early to mid thirties is when the other monster came out and I took on bulimia and it got really, really dark. It was you know, at a time when my marriage was falling apart and everything out of my life was out of my control and eating disorders, even though I'm, you know, super body conscious and, and health is a huge thing to me. Um, it was never about my weight or my health. It was more about control and, you know, stuffing feelings and reducing, you know, letting out that pressure. And when it turned to bulimia, this honestly, was it had a stronghold on me, like nothing, like no alcohol ever had. And I liked my whiskey and I liked my beer, but nothing had a stronghold on me like this did. And it was probably because it was the most chaotic part of my life at the time. And what started out as an occasional thing became a 10 to 20 time a day habit. Um, I would, you know, when I was getting divorced, I went from being a full-time parent to having to give up my kids on the weekends. And because I am an introvert by nature and I want to keep my secrets just that, I want to keep them secret, my weekends without them would turn into full-blown trips to the grocery store, filling up the cart, downing every single thing in it and completely eliminating it. Um that's before anybody got home, you know, there was no record of the event that happened. And it is the, you know, as I would stuff calories and everything down my, my stomach, you know, it was very symbolic of what I was trying to do. I was trying to stuff those feelings down to not feel them. And, and for a while it really helped until you stuff yourself so ridiculously full where you're in pain. And it's, I mean, that is how our, my life was, is I didn't want to feel all these feelings. I didn't want to feel all these feelings, stuff them, stuff them, stuff them. And then all of a sudden the pain was so unbearable where if I didn't relieve some pressure, I, you know, I would get the sweats and the shakes and my heart would race. And so I would head to the bathroom and stick my finger down my throat and let it all go. And it is hands down the, the best high if, I mean, it, I shouldn't say best because it's vile, um, but it was the biggest high I've ever gotten in my life. And it was so like, ugh, like you were letting all that go. It's very symbolic when all of this stuff is coming up and into the toilet and it's disgusting and even splashing up onto your face. And it's, it's just vile. It's the most vile thing I've ever done in my life, but also gave me the most relief at the time. And until I stood up and looked at myself in the mirror. And it would start all over again because, again, it's that cycle of shame and guilt and not wanting to feel it. And so I would stand up, look in the mirror and wipe all the chunks off my face and start all over again. And, um, you know, I, I would have issues with my stomach. I would have issues with my throat. Um, thankfully, my teeth remained intact, but all my hair started to fall out. I started to get a little too thin where people started to notice. So that scared me because I didn't want anybody to know. Um, but it was this deep, dark secret. And I justified this because it wasn't hurting anybody but me. And I felt at the time that that's all I was worth. That's what I deserved. You know, what kind of 
you know, wife was I? I couldn't keep my husband happy. What kind of mom was I if, you know, they're happy going to their dads? I mean, this is all the stuff that was going through my head at the time. You know, we were also at the point in the world where we were hitting the biggest recession of our time. And so financially, things were crazy. My business was starting to suffer. And I was a single parent for the first time. I hadn't been without somebody since I was 20 years old and here I am 34 and trying to figure all this out and trying to navigate these grown up feelings when part of me still felt like that little girl hiding under the dining room table at six years old. And, um, you know, I, the habit got so intense and my kids were starting to get to an age where, you know, I can't hide this stuff. Like when they were little, you know, they believe anything mom and dad said when you were little, right? right? I mean, when they're six, like Wilder is, you know, like, yes, mommy, you're the greatest thing in the whole wide world. And now my kids were adolescents and with big, passionate minds of their own. And so I had to be really strategic because this became a, a full-blown addiction where it wasn't just the weekends I didn't have them. It was every day, 10 to 20 times a day. And so I had to be really strategic about what I ate because certain things would be a lot harder to get up than others. And I didn't want to make noises. I didn't want them to hear it. And if I had to struggle to get it all up, which there was no way I wasn't, um, they could hear it. And so it, it became really dark and lonely and ugly. And um, yeah. You know, this uh, seems a bit like a rock bottom. <laughs> Is that, did you feel, did you hit a point where you were like looking at yourself in the mirror going, I can't get any worse? Or was this not a rock bottom for you? Um, not yet because nobody knew about it. Um, I felt as long as I could keep this secret, um, it would be okay. In my mind, rock bottom was going to affect a lot of people. Um, I had so many things and people depending on me that this is how I was able to handle that pressure. Um, my drinking wasn't as great at that time um, because I needed to be completely and fully present for my kids, even though, you know, slamming your fingers down your throat and playing this psycho game of binging and purging, you know, it's very naive to think that this isn't affecting every aspect of your life because it does. It, it affected yep. everything. And that was the lie I told myself. It's how I justified doing it. Um, it wasn't rock bottom yet, but things started to quickly escalate between that. Um, like I said, the recession happened. I went through the divorce. The divorce was finally final after three years of a lot of headaches and pain and just uncertainty. And I made the decision to shut down the business that I shared with my ex-husband. And that was our completely our complete financial income. And so I had to kind of go out into corporate America and for the first time in a decade, work outside the home, not be there when the kids got off the bus at school from school and things like that. And they were, you know, starting junior high at this point, which is such a crucial time in their lives. And I put on a new mask and a new hat and went to work and it got worse, believe it or not. <laughs> what do you mean it got worse? So I was in the car industry and it's, it was, I was very good at it. Um, but my new role in the car industry was I had like 300 different used car accounts. And part of my job was schmoozing them, you know, as an executive, um, account executive at this, um, 
auction in the Valley here. And my role was to get their business. And you think about used car dealers. I mean, the things that they enjoy to do are drinking things that maybe aren't, um, integrity filled at all times. Um, a lot of great people in the car industry, but the activities that they would like to do were things that I really, as a single mom, didn't want to do. But because I had a roof to put over my head, because money was so tight, because child support stopped coming in, and because I was kind of like um, scolded for not using my expense account enough to take these people out, um, I kind of felt like I had to check my soul at the door and participate in activities. And to not feel that, that's when my drinking picked up again. And at the same time, I was you know, straddling this very intense eating disorder. So then I had both of them swirling at the same time. And, you know, being away for 65, 70 hours a week, missing my children's, you know, I would show up at my son's baseball games and their dad would run up to me and be like, oh my God, you just missed it. You know, I I show up at the last inning. You just missed it. Joey hit a grand slam out. I'm like, you jerk. You know, here I am busting my ass and you're here at the games winning dad of the year. And here I am putting food over the table, braces on their teeth, keeping a roof over our head and, you know, feeling just, just not like a good mom. You know, in my mind, I was being a good mom because I'm, you know, keeping their life as normal as possible. Yet as a kid, their definition of love is spending time with you. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't doing that because I was doing what I had to do. And, um, plus they were at that age where, you know, 11 and 12 year olds, it's the worst age for everybody, parents and kids. And I just felt so inadequate and just like a piece of shit every day. And so to not feel that, yeah, it got worse. It got way worse. And, you know, I, uh, would end up at these golf outings with these people I'm trying to schmooze completely hammered in a golf cart, Um, just embarrassing, um, not classy at all. And I didn't like that about myself because that's not who I am. You know, that was my choice. It it isn't my character. And um, yeah, it actually did get worse. And when it got really, really bad um, was in 2012. And my drinking escalated where every single time I drank, it was a blackout. It wasn't every day, but it, it had escalated to four times a week at that point. And you know, when you're blacking out four times a week, you're a single parent, you're pretty high up in the executive world and working 70 hours a week, you know, to have these kind of things happen, you aren't functioning at a high level and you're not producing at a high level. And pretty much anybody that you come in contact with is walking on eggshells around you. Cause again, I had turned into Jekyll and Hyde, just what I did. Wow. I know it came full circle. And isn't that exactly what you remember as a kid? And were you aware of it at the moment? You know, at the time people were eggshelling around you? I thrived on it because, um, especially in the workplace, because, you know, as a woman in the car business, the the ratio is about a thousand to one. And here I show up as this blonde haired, you know, big boobed girl. And people automatically had this perception of me. And I was like, I was a power tripping, like, oh, hell no, I am not that girl. I am brains. I will do a great job for you, but don't do that. And I thrived on people being uncomfortable around me because then they would leave me the hell alone. And I liked that. Um, I was very aware of it a few times in 2012. 
um, at the early parts when I would see that same look in the eyes of my kids. And wow, I was like, okay, you know, they're about 13 and 14 at the time. And it was almost like a flashback to when I was a kid and that same look in, in, in their eyes that I had as a little girl. And it scared me. And there were a few times that my kids had to, you know, clean me up and put me to bed and not moments I'm proud of. I'm grateful that it was very short lived that they really experienced that. Um, because that is, that to me was way more rock bottom than, than anything else is seeing that I was keeping this cycle very much alive that I so, it was the one thing I definitely didn't want for my life. And, um, so in 2012, in the summer, June, um, I had had enough and decided to stop drinking. And so I walked into AA for the first time in June of 2012. And, um, yeah. It and was- it changed your life right away? Um, not really. Um, a lot of stuff happened right around that same time. I was in a relationship with somebody who I loved so much. And he was pretty much my father. Um, so I was always trying to please him. Um, the things that my dad loved about me, this guy loved about me. Um, the things my dad used to criticize about me, this guy criticized, criticized about me. We lived together at the time. My kids loved him. Um, but there were so many times we would be drinking together and all of a sudden it would take a turn. And the next thing I know, I'm waking up apologizing for things I didn't remember. And, um, so I decided to go into AA, I think at the time, um, to save this relationship. And sadly, it it wasn't necessarily, necessarily about the looks on my kids' faces at the time. Um, it was more about trying to save this relationship and pleasing this guy. And, um, he was a great guy too, but it was just an unhealthy, unhealthy situation, very toxic. And, it was within weeks of that. It was literally three weeks after my first steps into AA and I was continuously going. Uh, They tell you to get a sponsor and I didn't. Um, You know, I, in my mind, believed the ego had stepped in and was like, I'm going to do this different. I don't have to get new playmates. I don't have to get a sponsor. I'll just do your meetings and and I'm going to be okay. And, you know, I was for a little while. And then three weeks later, almost to the day, um, I got a call from my dad and he said, babe, I'm really sick. And again, my dad doesn't have a filter, but this was a different kind of filter. This was a very soft-spoken, unfiltered version of my dad. Um, and I knew he wasn't messing around. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? And he said, I have cancer. And, um, I'm like, okay. I said, you know, I'm a bottom line me kind of girl. And I I said, bottom line me, what does that mean? And he goes, well, we're not continuing any kind of treatment. Um, they've given me three weeks to three months to live and I want you to come home. And, um, yeah. So you went, so I'm three weeks into, sobriety at this point, or I would like to say I was dry. I wasn't really sober. I wasn't consuming alcohol. Mm-hmm. I was still participating with my eating disorder at this point. So I still had something I could turn to. Um, and of course, immediately I should be on an airplane, right? You know, I start shooting all over myself. 
I should be on an airplane immediately. But the single mom in me, the responsible part of me is all of a sudden looking at all the different dynamics that have to come into play for me to leave. You know, I'm a single parent who's going to take care of the kids. Okay, I work on, you know, 70% of my income is commission. If I don't work, I don't get paid and I'm barely making it. Even though I was making a good living, you know, I wasn't receiving child support. So all the the weight was on me and all the logistical shit that should not matter at the end of the road. You know, those were the things I was putting into place. So I had planned a week later to get there. So it was right after 4th of July that I had planned to go. And on 4th of July, my uncle called me and said, um, this is really bad. This is really bad. And, um, they're, they're going to call hospice in now and you need to come right now. And I remember dropping everything and, um, getting on the airplane and I was so pissed off. I was angry. It wasn't sad. I was angry that I was in this position that, that at a moment like this, the last thing I should have been having to worry about was my work and even the kids. I have family here. They have grandparents and a dad here that I shouldn't try and put all this shit on my shoulders all the time. Like, And I was mad I was in this position. I was mad at God. I was mad at myself. I was mad at all this shit. And I remember looking out the window and sobbing and saying, God, like seriously, if, if I am... I never want to be in this position again. I want to be able to take care of things and be the person that steps in and just handles it and can go and be there for family when needed. Because at the end of the road, if you had 12 days left to live, would you be worrying about how much money is in the bank or, or anything like that? And of course not. You would want every ounce of, of time you could have. And I remember that ugly, snotty-nosed prayer on the airplane. And you know, the plane landed and I ran out to the front where my uncle was waiting. And I knew that I would be able to tell by one look at my uncle if, if I made it in time, and, and, and I did. And I got to my dad's house and where we had had many conversations and where that table sat with all the burn holes in it instead of the table was a hospital bed and my dad, looking unrecognizable and unable to speak, um, was laying there with morphine being pumped in him every hour or so. And my stepmom, who was amazing and... Um, the minute he was diagnosed, dropped everything to be there with him for those two weeks. And, um, you know, 10 hours later, I held my hand, my, the hand of my dad as, as he looked terrified and took his last breath. And I let him know that I would be okay, that I would make him proud. And, um, yeah, it was horrible. And, and I was also at the same time, super grateful that he didn't suffer very long because my dad is not a very compliant patient and he would have been a nightmare for anybody that had to take care of him. So, and, and he's got a lot of pride. And so I was really grateful, even though my heart was breaking, I was grateful that he didn't have to suffer too long. Um, but then to go back to your life, you know, that changed me in ways, you know, I just turned 40 you know, I'm, I, I told you everything that was going on. And, you know, I tried to go back to my life as though nothing had happened and I was completely different. And I was very quiet and, um, you know, still kind of going to my AA meetings, but not talking. And uh, about six weeks later, the boyfriend and I, you know, he even said, you know, you've been doing so good. And, you know, what's one weekend going to do? And I'm like, you know what? You're right. It's your birthday. Let's go to Vegas. 
And so after 111 days of sobriety or of not drinking, I should say it wasn't sobriety, um, 111 days of not drinking, I decided Vegas was probably a really good idea. And again, it was isn't that amazing what we can justify? <laughs> so ridiculous. Like looking back, I'm like, how in the heck did I think that that was a good idea? And literally he walked out of the convenience store with, um, you know, the little um, peppermint schnapps. Yep, oh, yeah. Bottles. And, and it was on. And it was interesting that first night, nothing bad happened and I could actually control it. And so I was like, maybe I, maybe I'm not an alcoholic, you know, all of a sudden all the, the stinking thinking creeps in. And by the second night I was belly up with, you know, buckets of crown Royal at a blackjack table with the worst blackout of my life, literally could have killed somebody in that blackout and wouldn't have remembered it and, um, caused a lot of wreckage that night that was unrepairable and, um, jumped out of a moving cab because of the shame um, literally on Las Vegas Boulevard at five in the morning, uh, jumped out of a moving cab. Thank goodness there was nobody on the road at that time. And, and I didn't sustain too many injuries except to my, my pride and my heart and my ego. And he left me there. The boyfriend left me there. And, um, I called my friend that had introduced me to AA before. And I called her and I said, Julie, I have a problem. She goes, I know he already called me. And so that was my last night of drinking. And I knew that if I wanted something different, I was going to need to do something different. And it couldn't be about him. It couldn't be about anybody. It couldn't even be about my kids. I needed to want sobriety and I needed to be told what to do. And I needed to listen to, to proper, you know, good orderly direction in order to have this for a lifetime. And so I marched my ass back into AA, literally in the same clothes I was wearing the night before. And, um, turned my will and my life over to God and got a sponsor that first night and, um, you know, decided to do things different. And, you know, he left and stayed at a friend's house. So I came home and he was already gone. And, um, you know, that same time I was just like, in so much pain. Cause I knew I had hurt him, but I couldn't remember anything that I had said. And that's almost worse. Like, like literally I could have killed somebody and I killed his spirit you know, that night. And, um, I, d- I didn't know what to do. And so I didn't eat. I didn't eat because everything hurt. My, my stomach hurt, you know, and when I get anxious, you know, my, my stomach turns into knots. And so literally in, in those three weeks, I lost 25 pounds and, um, you know, I'm, 25 pounds on a five foot five girl is a lot. And, um, I wouldn't answer any phone calls. The only time I got up out of bed really was to, um, take the kids to school and get them where they needed to go. And, um, I called my uncle cause I knew I was in trouble and it wasn't a good conversation. He's like, get your head out of your ass. You were not raised like this. You are a fighter. Just fucking fight. Would you just fight? And so that day, um, I called and um, had set up to go into rehab, um, called my boss and resigned, walked away from every ounce of income that I had because I knew if I stayed there, I was going to die. And literally two days later, I walked into rehab. I had to have the conversation with my kids and they were uh, 14 and 15 at the time. And um, that was the hardest conversation I've ever had to have. And my son, who was 14 at the time, said, Mom, we will gladly give you up for 30 days to have you the rest of our life. And so 
I walked into those doors ready to fight. I was going to tell every ounce of my truth for the first time. I was not going to let these secrets that were killing me do that anymore. And so I walked into rehab laying all and every card on the table. And I said, if I'm going to come in here for alcohol, I'm coming in here for the eating disorders as well. And it was the first time I had ever spoken of, of it. And, um, you know, that first day I heard the statistics in, in people that stay sober the rest of their life. And it's about 2%, you know, and I was thrown into this house with about 15 people. And I looked around, you know, the room and that competitive fiery chicken meat kind of started to emerge. And even though I was terrified and heartbroken, I stood up for the first time before even anybody knew who I was. And I just apologized to everyone and told them that they weren't going to be the ones to make it because I was going to be that 2%. And good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. You are so incredibly courageous in so many ways. And the first is just to recognize right now your openness and honesty and thank you so much. I mean, this is definitely so freaking emotional and, um, and it's not easy. And I know you've put yourself out there since this has been years and time does help us do that. But, um, I think you will help people just by having shared your story And you know, Tracy, we are definitely running a really slow 5k today because we've been going almost, almost an hour and, um, and there's just so much more to talk about. I don't even know how to move us forward here. (laughs) Well, I can take us forward if you want. So, um, I got out of rehab and literally wasn't sure what I would come home to. And it was eerie. It's almost like I hadn't left you know, but it was kind of had that smell of staleness. The boyfriend had come back and, you know, it was very volatile for a little while. Uh, You know, if you've seen the movie, The Breakup with Vince Vaughn and Jennifer Aniston, um, I was basically living that for a few more months. And, you know, at one point, you know, my bed was completely taken out of the bedroom and he threw an air mattress in there. Um, You know, I was like reliving this, but I was sober. He would say I'd said things or blame me for things. But because I was sober now, I'm working on my sobriety, I could be like, "Mm, I'm calling bullshit, because I know what I said now. And you're full of it. Like, and I would fight back in ways where I hadn't before. And it was almost like I was putting this mirror up in front of him of who he was. And he had even made comments to me in previously as saying, you know, you're, I'm a bigger alcoholic than you are. And I I can't disagree with him necessarily. But you know, all I can worry about is me. You know, I, I can't control people, places, or things, only my reactions to them. And I can only own my part in any story, whether it was my ex-husband's, this guy's, my dad's, whatever story. Like I can only own my part and be responsible for my part in it. And so uh, we tried to make it work and it just didn't. And for a little while, you know, I really believed, I kind of saw myself slipping back, not into like drinking, but you know, my work in recovery was starting not to get so important. You know, I was starting to try and find a new job. Of course, all the headhunters in the car business were trying to get me because I was really good at it, even though I hated it. Um, and at the same time, you know, spiritually, I felt fit. You know, my spiritual fitness was pretty rock solid. Um, I was feeling like I can speak to the rooms of AA and it was a safe place to share. And even in the short time I had in recovery, people were telling me that my story was helping them. And I was like, okay, that's good. But then I'd come home to such dysfunction and, and try to keep the peace and it just wasn't working. And at the same time I got involved in, um, 
nutritional, a nutritional program only to feel better. I, I was like, seriously, I'm spiritually fit, but at 40 years old, I shouldn't feel like a truck just ran me over. And I did. And so I, uh, I started this nutritional company and within a week I felt like a new person better than I had as a college athlete, better than I had in my entire life. And I was like, what the hell is in this shit? <laughs> what company was, what company it was is it? Isogenics. Oh, there we go. And and the next chapter begins. Next chapter begins. And, you know, the girl that kind of told me about it, she's like, you know, there's a way to get your products paid for. I'm like, shut up. I don't want any part of that. I am not a network person. I don't don't want to be one of those in one of those things, you know, those pyramid schemey things like no way, no way, no way. And at the same time, I was like, I love this stuff. Like, I know lots of people that really need to have this in their life. And at the same time, I was unemployed and, you know, I didn't want to, I had job interviews where I'm sitting there like, I don't want to be doing this. And ironically, at the same time I had interviewed, I had like 20 interviews and one of them was the only one I wanted. And it was working with charities. It was something completely different. And I had interviewed with like the four heads of the company, like the top four people that, you know, ran this company. And I was pretty confident in that. And it was about a week after I started Isogenics. And I remember getting the phone call. I was on my way home from an AA meeting. And literally, the the person that interviewed me first was calling me. And so I pulled over to the Starbucks parking lot, getting yeah, got my little notebook out because I was like certain they were going to tell me my orientation date and when I could expect my contract and all these things. And they literally called me to tell me that they chose somebody else. And... I was at a point in my life where, you know, I had no more savings left. Um, the kids are looking at me like, uh, what are we going to do, mom? You know, I was the type of person that went back to work 13 days after giving birth. So, you know, to be five or six months out of work was very uncomfortable for me. Um, and I was surprised that I wasn't like panicking or reacting in a defensive way. Like all of a sudden, all these old character defects of mine weren't coming into play anymore. And I was really calm and grateful, grateful for the opportunity to interview with them. And I was like, what? Like, I almost was like turning around, like, who the heck is this chick? And it was me. And um, I remember looking down at my little cup holder in my car and, and the the stuff I was drinking at the time was some isogenic stuff. And I was like, hmm, I wonder what this this is all about. And so I went home that day and, and, and um, Googled the company. You know, I just knew what the heck I was drinking. I knew I was, you know, the kids were like, whatever you're doing, you, what are you doing, mom? You, you look happier. You look better. You're, you're calm, you know, all this stuff. And I Googled the company that day and found out their core values, things like personal excellence, family, freedom, um, integrity. Like those were their core values. And those were things that, that were aligning with my soul. And so I was like, oh, that's interesting. And so I kind of remembered to that conversation a week before and I didn't want to work with her. (laughs) So I wasn't gonna, but I looked up the compensation plan that was attached to these products I was already madly in love with that I was never going to be without. And I understood the compensation plan very clearly. And it wasn't about, you know, enrolling everybody that you've ever talked to in your life because that's not my thing at all. I'm an introvert and I'm a relationship builder. I'm not a turn and burn kind of girl. And anytime I've been in sales, it was never that kind of sales. It was more build relationships. And looking at the compensation plan, I knew that I knew a few people, none locally, because I had pretty much cleaned house of my network. 
here in Arizona because my best playmates were my drinking buddies. And so I had one friend here and my two kids and a very toxic relationship that wasn't going anywhere. And honestly, the only network I had left was my social media, which was pretty much all of Downers Grove South High School. Uh, that had I was right. <laughs> yeah. None of you of which had talked to or seen me in 25 years. And so I was like, you know what? It's a good idea. I'm going to start a network marketing business. And literally, um, I did my first vulnerable post ever in my life on Facebook. And it wasn't about flashing any pictures or any of that, you know, a lot of that, you know, network marketing bullshit you see on social media, news feeds all day long, like, you know, drink my shakes and make a million dollars. It was never, I will never be that person. And I'm never going to be. Um, It was just speaking my truth again, like, listen, I felt like a truck hit me at 40 and blah, blah, blah. And the next thing you know, 53 people wanted to know what the heck I was doing. And that's kind of how it started. And around that same time, the guy I was with, he saw me empowering myself and he did not like it. And long story short, a fight erupted between the two of us. And the next thing I know, I come home and he, I come home and literally all the pictures are off the wall. He's gone. The dog's gone and out walked my heart. And I remember my kids looking at me like, okay, you have no job. The love of your life just walked out. You only have six months of sobriety under your belt. Um, What are we going to do? How are you? Like, I could see the look in their eyes. Like, how are you going to cope now, mom? And um, I remember looking at them very empowered and calm and told them we are going to be okay. Mom is going to, mom is going to take care of this. We're going to be just fine. We are going to be just fine. And I'm not worried. I'm not worried about me. I'm not worried about us. And it's all going to work out. And I was like, holy crap, what did I just say? You know, I, I was more of the doom and gloom kind of thinker and the victim my whole life. Like all of a sudden I'm talking like this empowered, strong woman. And for the first time in my life at 40 years old, I felt like I wasn't just talking the talk. I was actually walking that walk. You know, I wasn't full of shit for the first time in my life. And literally a day later, I was at an event for this company and felt myself being empowered. And I knew that I could do this. I didn't know how, but I knew why. And, you know, sometimes knowing why we do something is way more important than the how, you know, it's kind of like jump and you'll find your wings Mm -hmm. on the way down. And I did, I did. I, I knew nobody. And, and the people I knew didn't like me very much anymore because I walked out of their life or, you know, put an end to their fun. Um, and, you know, little by little, I just started building myself up and pouring love and belief into other people. And I knew if I poured enough love and care and, and service into other people that eventually I would get where I needed to go. And if I took the focus off what my needs were, you know, other than the self-care stuff and my, you know, taking care of my sobriety, you know, anything I put in front front of my sobriety, I'm going to lose anyway. So that had to stay at the forefront, no matter how much money I needed, no matter how big this business was going to get, no, no matter, you know, what kind of parent I was, my sobriety must come first because anything I put in front of it, I will lose. I've already tested that. And I knew that, that that to be true. And so little by little, I started to build that little network of 400 friends on Facebook, um, one by one. And, you know, one of my favorite movies of all time is Field of Dreams. And, um, you know, when Kevin Costner is standing out there in the field and all you see are like corn, cornfields. And, you know, if you build it, they will come. And that's kind of how I felt. You know, I was not only building myself up, but I was building up 
a, a community of people that wanted something different for their life. And maybe they didn't know anything different, or maybe they just needed to witness somebody else going first. And I was willing to take one for the team and be the one that went first. Um, it's a very lonely spot to be sometimes, but if you continue to do that, um, it shows up in your life over and over and over again by the people that come in and literally, you know, I was staring at a blank cornfield, so to speak. Um, and the next thing I know, I turned around and there was an army behind me, um, believing in me and believing in my belief in them. And that's kind of how it all started. It was definitely not what I had had on my radar at all. And next thing you know, I'm like, you know, the poster child for a health and wellness company. <laughs> it's, just, it's just incredible. And you know, um, you deserve all the incredible happiness and success that comes your way because you have been willing to put yourself out there and do the hard work and, uh, and you should be rewarded for that. But you know, and you know this through experience, you can never let off. You need to keep those things that are important. Like you mentioned your sobriety, you need to keep that in the forefront or the rest can crumble. It's, it's just amazing. I'm so proud of you. You know, it's interesting too, because at that, that first event, um, I heard the statistics as well. Um, it was, it's such a symbolic thing for me. It was almost like deja vu a little bit, but I was hearing, you know, I looked at the income disclosure, you know, because you, you see all the, the hype around a lot of these network marketing companies, which I can't stand. This company was really different with that, but I wanted to know, you know, bottom line me again, what, what are the, the chances of somebody being super successful in one of these things, right? You know, if I'm going to put all my cards on the table, I want to know that I got a shot and ironically, you know, 85, 88% are happy product users, which is great. And about 13%, um, will share it occasionally and only 2% will take this to the six figure and beyond and less than 1% will take it to multiple six figures. And I was like, Oh, look at that funny number, another two percenter. And at that first event, I literally turned to the lady next to me and I, I, you know, I still had mascara running down my face because I was still heartbroken about the love of my life walking out on me. I literally looked like a hot mess. And I turned to this chick that I didn't know. I said, I, I don't know what I'm, I'm about to tell you this, but I'm going to be a millionaire before my son goes into college. And she didn't know who I was for, for Jack. And she looks at me and she just kind of picked up on my energy. She goes, you know what? She goes, I have no doubt you're going to do that. I'm like, well, that, I go, that's only three years away. So I guess I better get to work. And ironically, I was able to do it a year ahead of that goal. And uh, it's just amazing. Yeah. You know, I love, I love reading about, cause you can, if anybody Everybody listening, you know, this is like gripping. I have to leave soon because I got to go pick up my girl. I want to keep talking, but you're so competitive. We're already at the, we're the longest podcast I've ever oh, done. Um, but it is, it's incredible. Like you will see that Tracy O'Malley is in the millionaires club. I mean, you are making some serious money and yeah, money was part of it, but we all know after listening to your story that that's not what drives you. That is just, that's, part of a, the competitive nature, well, you know, but we, we know what the foundation of Tracy O'Malley is from listening. Well, and there's, there's that. And, you know, I, I had to kind of come to grips with that. And, you know, some people are equally as afraid of success as they are failure. And a lot of people will sabotage themselves before they're on the edge of 
a huge breakthrough. And I had to really work hard on myself to not do that because I had a pattern of that in my life, whether it be like my health goals, fitness goals, whatever relationships, I would sabotage the crap out of so many things. And this was something that I was so passionate about. And, you know, by speaking my truth, it was kind of keeping me accountable. But I also had to re program my, my money story as well. I mean, money was a huge issue in my family. It was the biggest source of fights and, and conflict in our home, you know, um, just from how my dad was raised and, you know, he had to take care of his family. And so I had to kind of relearn my own money story. And one of my really good friends and mentors, um, he does a podcast called for the love of money. So if you haven't checked that out, you must. And I know it sounds like for the love of money, we think of, you know, show me the money. And it isn't that it's, um, his tagline is when good people make good money, they do great things. And that was always my goal is, you know, when I think back to where I was a short five and a half years ago and the things that helped change my life, things like young life that, embraced my children at our hardest times. They had a community of love and support that they could be themselves and tell their truths and, and lift them up. You know, I want to be able to give back on massive levels to a young life organization that I can see my son doing the rest of his life. You know, I am big into animal rescue. I want to have an animal rescue out here in Arizona specifically for my, my beloved pit bulls because they're so misunderstood and misjudged kind of like how I feel most of my life. And, you know, and recovery and to do those massive things that I want to do in those specific three areas, it's going to take a lot of money. And so I'm very unapologetic about how hard I work. I'm very unapologetic about the income I generate because it isn't for, you know, flashy purses or, you know, big fancy cars or homes. It's about what I can do with that to make a bigger impact in this world and to, you know, to make the changes that, you know, this world is a scary place right now and, you know, it needs people going first. And I am willing to be that person in all areas, in, in all ways, in all ways, you know, and, um, So my, my desire to keep pushing myself and, you know, I I think I told you and we can kind of finish here. um, You know, I'm kind of a growth junkie at heart. And, and even when I started my isogenics business, I knew that I would do it forever because I love it, but it wasn't going to be who Tracy O'Malley is. Like I'm not the network marketer. I, I mean, I'm powerful in it. I am one of the the top in the industry, which is great. And I'm very proud of that. And, and I am, happy to put the face as a different kind of network marketer than most, you know, I'm not the person that you run from in the store when you see coming, like, oh my God, she's going to recruit me. Like, I'm not that person and I'm happy to be that. And I will, but I know that God's plan for me is to make a much bigger impact and help people with those breakthroughs that they are so desiring that yet they, they sabotage or they believe these old stories or they haven't reprogrammed their thinking from, you know, things that were said to them or things they believe about themselves or, you know, circumstances that have happened. And, you know, at any moment, at any moment, you can decide that this is not how your story is going to go. And you can pick up the pen and rewrite it or write new chapters to it. And, you know, or even write an afterword to it. You know, my entire book was written at in a part of the story we haven't even talked about, you know, when I thought I was on my deathbed. And, um, you know, at any moment, you can pick up that pen and write an afterword that is, you know, 
empowering and powerful and beautiful. And, and the great thing is, is we all have that choice. And so my goal in the, in the future is to just help facilitate more of those breakthroughs and, and help people get over that hump where they don't have to do this vicious cycle of getting on the verge and then quitting before the miracle happens or, you know, sabotaging it or playing small because somebody in their life is not happy about them. And, you know, people want them to dim their lights because it's shining too bright in their face. And, you know, so I'm, I'm really excited for where God's bringing me, um, in the future and, and the people that continue to come into my life. You know, I've got, I'm staring at a new cornfield tap today and know that I'm going to keep building it and they're going to come. Oh, I love that. Well, let's do a giveaway then. Let's, uh, let's do a post here. We will, Let's see. We're going to guide you to Skirt Sports Facebook page, but we're also going to send you over to Tracy O'Malley's page. And uh, we're going to ask, what breakthrough are you ready to make? And you, Tracy, are going to choose the winner. And they're going to get a signed copy of your book, which isn't out yet. It's coming out Any soon. Any day now, it should be out. But I would love to to know what breakthrough in your life, if you could choose any breakthrough in your life to happen today, what would it be? Love it. That is so perfect. All right. Well, we're going to do the very last question here, and then I'm going to go pick up my girl, and you are going to continue on this path of amazing, amazing momentum. Oh my gosh. So happy to reconnect. All right. So if you can give our listeners one final piece of advice, one little nugget to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? Mm. Um, to love people, to serve them, and to care that, care for them, um, and speak your truth. And, and don't be ashamed of your past. Um, you know, we weren't meant to live this life alone. And so often um, I find myself, I have to catch myself today because I still am kind of that introverted lone wolf at times, especially when I feel a, a big breakthrough coming. You know, it's like this moment of um, meditative quiet and I don't always do well with the quiet. So I like to stir things up sometimes. And, and I used to have a, a, a habit of when it got too quiet, I would make some drama happen because then I could overcome, you know, something, you know, who doesn't love a good zero to hero story. But I would say just stand up in your truth. Um, you know, we heard Oprah say it last night too, uh, the other night on uh, the Golden Globes. Um, you know, our standing in our truth and telling our truth is probably the most powerful tool that we have. And not just for any kind of success, but for that peace in your soul. Um, you know, because when, when I take it back full circle to that phone call with my dad, and if I knew today that I had 12 days left to live today, I know that I have made my imprint on this world and I've told every bit of my truth um, for no other reason but to serve the greater good. Um, so even if you think your truth is scary or something that maybe you don't want people to know, please just stand up in it, be unapologetic about it, and continue to move forward, taking action to make the best version of yourself. And, you know, somebody can be inspired by your story. And because you went first and were so brave and courageous, you're giving them permission to do the same thing. You never know who you're inspiring. Well, you just inspired a whole bunch of Run This World listeners. Um, Tracy, thank you so much for being you. I cannot wait to see what you do next. Me too. It's going to be fun. All right. I'm back. 
uh, you'll be happy to know that I did pick up Wilder in time. <laughs> I was the last mom, but I was still on time. So uh, this is quite the amazing and powerful episode. I love Tracy's final nugget. It's sort of a summary of the entire episode. This kind of goes like this. Tell your truth to serve the greater good. Even if you think your truth is scary or something you don't want other people to know, just stand up in it. Be unapologetic about it and continue to move forward, taking action to make the best version of yourself. Someone else could be inspired by your story. And because you went first and were so brave and courageous, you're giving them permission to do the same thing. You never know who you're inspiring. So let me tell you, while Tracy and I talked for at least a 10K, this is a long episode, I recognize that, we didn't even hit on her more current life experience, something she's dealing with as we speak. You see, Tracy's been uh, suffering from an unexplained, very serious health issue for three years that was only recently diagnosed and, and starting. she started treatment. So we are talking about this on a live video call, which will be posted on Skirt Sports and Nicole DeBoom social sites. So for more on Tracy, be sure to check out the video. We will let you know when it's up. Follow her on Facebook, Tracy O'Malley, on Instagram, on tracyomalley.com. Her site's coming up real soon. Or just literally Google her and see what shows because there is a lot of information on this incredible woman. All right, everyone, you know what time it is. It's time to run this world. Have a great workout and I'll see you next week.